There's a giant building that looms on the commanding heights overlooking the town of Hopewell. Its view is concealed from the town below by a stand of trees, which have no business being in New Jersey, redwoods, Japanese maples. But in the winter, after the leaves fall, you can catch a glimpse of the house through the trees. It's a huge, strangely shaped mansion of brick and dark wood, with two towers at its corners, one round and one square. It is technically a Victorian house, but everyone calls it the castle. It's the kind of eerie building that attracts urban legends. Some are that it has secret tunnels, that it was once the headquarters of a cult, and that it has ties to the origins of a powerful corporation. Not only are these urban legends true, but the castle protects even stranger and darker secrets. It's forgotten history. I'm Dickon Hyatt, and on this podcast, we explore obscure and intriguing stories from central New Jersey's past. Today's episode is about the castle and the man who built it, Webster Edgerly, who is a 19th century author who wrote more than 80 books under the pen name Edmund Shaftesbury, which he sold through an organization called the Ralston Health Club. These books promised readers they could achieve health and possibly immortality by doing exercises such as walking only on the balls of their feet and avoiding walking in straight lines or making sudden motions because those things would drain vital energy. He even promised that followers could learn to control other people's minds by developing their powers of what he called personal magnetism. Edgerly's club claimed it had 800,000 members at its peak, including politicians and former presidents. In addition to its impressive membership lists, the Ralston Health Club was connected to the Ralston Purina Corporation which manufactured something called Ralston Breakfast Health Food and other products. The castle is all that remains of a sprawling estate that Edgerly built at the height of his fame. It was supposed to be the center of a community called Ralston Heights, where Edgerly's followers would congregate and learn from his wisdom. He tried to sell plots of land in his community, calling it a modern scientific Garden of Eden. After Edgerly's death in 1926, the history of Edgerly and the Ralston Health Club faded into obscurity, and in some cases was deliberately covered up. There is not a single history book about Ralstonism or a biography of Edgerly. He would probably still be forgotten today if not for the work of one researcher. Janet Six, an archaeologist, lived in the castle for eight years and completed a study of the ruins of Ralston Heights for her master's thesis at the University of Pennsylvania. She published a paper about Edgerly and the castle in 2003 and wrote an article about him for Archaeology Magazine. She is the world's leading expert on Edgerly and may be the only one at all. Today, Dr. Janet Six is a professor of applied anthropology and archaeology at the University of Hawaii. Dr. Six joined us by phone to discuss the strange cult of Ralstonism. It's a long interview because there is, as I say, a lot going on here. She started by telling us about the first time she saw the castle. I first laid eyes on it in the 90s, and it's a Queen Anne-style building, not like anything in the town of Hopewell. It's built in kind of the railroad tradition. Um, it's actually two houses I discovered um, during the course of my research, so... There was an original house built that he purchased, and then he added a giant uh, front to it. So it's red brick, and unlike the charming kind of variegated bricks, he had all the bricks hand-matched and brought their high-fire bricks brought from a, uh, on a barge from England. So the front of the house is incredibly impressive and, and, and very large, um, you know, high ceiling, so it, it just looms at you. But the side, we called it the pump house. The older building, you can see that the bricks are of different quality. And so that was one of the clues that it was actually an older house. 
that he had purchased. And there's all rumors in Hopewell that there was tunnels under there that connected to the graveyard and that it was once part of the Underground Railroad. I was not able to substantiate that, but there were um, tunnels blocked up in that part of the house. So it's overwhelming when you first see it. You drive up the driveway, it just looms at you. You go inside, and it's super disorienting. Um, no two rooms are the same size. There's no flow. It's um, not your normal paradigmatic home where you walk in. There's the living room, there's the kitchen. You kind of have an understanding of a layout. This, this was intentionally designed to confuse you. He says to stimulate your mind. And I would take people there because it's 27,000 square feet. And they would get lost because it's also designed for acoustics. And he designed this main stairwell to seat a 36-piece orchestra in front of the giant two-story window, stained glass window. So there's an echo chamber that goes all the way up to the third floor. When you go in, it's a lot of dark wood. Uh, he brought the wood in from all over the world, and he brags about that quite a bit. And it's a classic Victorian. It's creepy. Um, any kind of worker would come. They'd want me to go to the basement with them. Like I could somehow protect them from the giant glowing Scooby-Doo <laughs> ghost ball that would be coming towards them because the house had kind of an unnerving quality. Do you think that's one reason why there were so many rumors and ghost stories about it in the town of Hopewell? First of all, it belonged to a guy named Colonel Gordon, who was a northern colonel. The house was originally owned. Edgerly covers that up. Webster Edgerly, the, the guy that goes in and redoes the house never mentions him, but I found some old photographs showing the original house and then a wooden front that he had originally put on while he built this giant facade. So the house is in his hands until his wife and daughter sell it, and then it goes to Tiny. Tiny was like a Tiny and her sister, and they were like legends. I did not know Tiny. She had passed by the time I was kind of in town, but they lived in there. There was four sisters, and they lived in there, um, two of the sisters, and they were kind of notorious women in town, kind of party girls, and they lost it in a poker game for, I think it was $10,000 in the wow. 70s. And um, it was full of uh, over 100 cats were living in there. So it been, so Edgerly has it, he builds it, it's all in the newspapers, this fabulous place he's building, this wonderland, this paradise, this Garden of Eden, right? Then he passes, he dies on the table during a prostate exam in Trenton, and his wife sells it, because they have another house right by the downtown area of Trenton, right by kind of the courthouse area, or the Capitol building, anyway. And so then the, the women lived in there, and they started selling it off piecemeal. There was, there was you know, one point over 50 acres attached to that estate, and they sold it to Betty Johnson. Um, she, she acquired the parcels behind the house, which had the ice ponds and some outbuildings. And I think that's when the mystery started, because these women lived up there with all their cats. And the gentleman that got it from them, he played a game of poker with them, and he gave them a check, and their folly was they cashed the check, so the judge honored his purchase of $10,000 for this place. And some of the photos um, you might have seen um, of the more decrepit aspects were when it was totally just, it was the roof had caved in on the third floor. Only two towers have original slate, and all these feral animals were living inside, kind of like Great Gardens, if you're hmm. familiar with that documentary. Yeah. And so I think that's when a lot of the mystery started. I interviewed people who said they'd played in the tunnels. Now, whether they were underground railroad tunnels or if they were actually service tunnels, because there was a number of outbuildings, um, which now are on Betty Johnson's property behind the house. And they could have been tunnels that connected, you know, so you don't want to see the servants when they bring the food, right? So they would go from the kitchen in the backyard through tunnels into the house. That's common practice. So we never determined. But the rumors were it was an underground railroad, which it could have been. It was the Reading Railroads there and the Quakers, and a lot of people were moving people through that area, and it did belong to a 
northern military officials, so it's hard to say. But I think the rumors just started because it's hidden behind these massive trees. You couldn't see it except in the dead of winter when the trees, the leaves were gone. You could get a peek of it from the graveyard. It's spooky looking. And the first time I got there, honest to God, I was terrified. I, when I moved there, I got night lights for every single hall because it is a very disorienting space. That's the best I could say. I never found that anybody died in that house in my research, as far as any actual hauntings. But Edgerly himself, um, he taught oratory and elocution to a lot of very famous people, including um, Harry Houdini. And Edgerly claims that he has the spirits of four Native Americans trapped in a clove of pines, a grove of pines behind the house. So there was some seancey stuff going on. This is the time of theosophy and all the stuff going on with Madame Blatsky down in, in Philly with the white dog. So it was just an interesting time. And he taught oratory and elocution to opera singers and famous stage performers that would come down to take private lessons on the third floor, which was completely designed for acoustic. We don't know if Houdini was involved in any of the seances or trying to debunk them, but it was um, a lot of interesting things going on in that house. In the late 1980s, Janet lived in Maui where she ran a fishing boat. There she became friends with Don Roberts, whose family owned Ralston Heights. The Robert family offered to let Janet live at Ralston Heights if she took care of the property while she finished her college degree. She moved there in 1995. Right after I got there, her mother came down, uh, not came down, but was diagnosed with uh, pancreatic cancer. She passed within three months of my arrival. I ended up staying on and being the property manager. I didn't know anything about the history. Just knew it had some tie to Ralston, Karina, nothing. That was it. No one, no one knew any of the real history of it. Mm-hmm. And they'd found a magazine in the attic that dated to um, 18, I think it's 1894, the official or Ralston, Oregon, Oregon of Ralston. So that was the, the first um, clue that it was tied to Purina. So I moved in and took over managing some of their buildings they had in Hopewell and managing the castle because um, Don's father, Phil Roberts, is a businessman and was working primarily in Europe and was uh, had a house in Germany, so I was there by myself a lot with just some tenants. And I was going to New York University for my undergrad, and one of my friends, I was telling about the house, and they said, that would be a really interesting master's thesis, and that's when I started kind of doing the research on the little snippets of information that the family knew, hmm. the Roberts family. So who was Webster Edgerly, and where did he come from? <laughs> Okay. He was born in Salem, Massachusetts, to a woman named Rhoda Lucinda Stone, which is where Ralston comes from, R-L-S-T-O-N, oh. Ralston, Rhoda Lucinda Stone. And he had a couple of sisters. He was the baby of the family. Um, she's a cousin of the suffragette Lucy Stone out of Boston. So he lived in Salem, Massachusetts. He went to BU. He got his law degree. I just I found this out after I did my master's thesis, but um, I did some more research. Because a lot of people have kind of delved into him. I didn't... Um, a short article for Archaeology Magazine that kind of stirred up some interest. and so, But basically, it seems that his wife, he felt he was being cuckolded, so he arranged this sting operation at a hotel in Massachusetts and um, broke in on them. And anyway, he got run out of town, and he moved to Topeka, Kansas. So he goes to Topeka, Kansas, and that's interesting because that's where Will Danforth has founded Purina Mills. And their logo is Mob the Mule. They are, you know, Purina is, is animal feed. And we still think of Purina largely as dog, cow, dog chow, and you know. But so Purina is doing animal feed. But in the 19th century, everybody's looking for the perfect food. So we have Sylvester Graham and the Grahamites invent the Graham cracker, which they thought would reduce your libido. And then Kellogg had the cornflake. Well, Will Danforth had whole wheat. He'd figured out how to leave the germ on the wheat bran without it going rancid. 
So he had something he wanted to market. So Edgerly has moved to Topeka, where Will Danforth is. And suddenly we're seeing Ralston being sold, selling Purina food products. And it's not the Ralston Purina Company until 1902, but it's Ralston. And at that time, Webster Edgerly is also hawking for Nabisco, or the National Biscuit Company, as it's called back then. So he's kind of a celebrity spokesman. He has a large following. They do what he, they, he tells them to do. And so he gets into uh, business with Will Danforth. Now, Purina has covered all this up. I actually got a personal letter from Will Danforth III, who was he's a president emeritus of Washington University in St. Louis, and also he was an ambassador, I think, under Bush II. Um, he had no idea. He wrote to me after he read the oh, Archaeology wow. Magazine article and said, I had no idea, because all their literature says that they were founded by Dr. Ralston. <laughs> so there is no Dr. Ralston. There's three people. Okay, there's Webster Edgerly. His real name is Albert Webster Edgerly, and I love that his uh, initials spell ah. <laughs> but he drops the Albert. He's named after Daniel Webster. His mother's, of course, according to him, his mother's friend is Daniel Webster, the famous orator who could argue down the devil, hence the play Devil and Daniel Webster. And Daniel Webster was sickly as a child, and he cultivated a series of breathing exercises to allow him to project. So in the beginning, the very first thing Edgerly's doing is artistic lessons in deep breathing. And he's doing ventriloquism and all kinds of things about the voice. And remember, this is a time of consumption and tuberculosis, and people are really concerned about you know, things that are in their lungs. So Edgerly found so much of oratory and elocution schools, but he starts off kind of in, the, in a mail-order book club, which is he's the first person to ever do this kind of pyramid thing where mm-hmm. you buy four books, I give you a fifth one free, you sell them to your friends, you found your own Ralston franchise. So it was kind of an interesting, um, just kind of come across. He's also the first person that I'm aware of to target children in advertising. Huh. Because children now have pocket money. So it's like, go get your parents to bu- get the, you know, go get a, get Ralston cereal. Get your grocer to carry Ralston cereal. I'll send you a wagon. So he's, Webster Edgerly is a lawyer by training, and he is unsuccessful in his first marriage. He goes to Kansas, somehow forms his alliance with Will Danforth Sr. And then he ends up marrying an 18-year-old woman and moving to Hopewell. Because he was, I think, 40, 42. Anyway, he thought everyone should marry. He thought everyone should have sex with someone old enough to be their grandmother. And he thought everyone should marry someone, and when they were ready, that'd be about 20 years younger than them. So he is living in D.C. Interestingly, he's living in, in Washington, D.C., across the street from Tesla and Alexander Graham Bell. So he, Did he ever meet those people? Uh, yeah. He, okay, so he's personal magnetism, right? He also, you have to know that Ralston Prina is Energizer Batteries, Energizer Bunny. That's also Prina. Prina turns into Hostess, right? Jack in the Box, Energizer. So yeah, Edgerly is always fascinated with um, energy, but he's not a scientist. Like <laughs> he believes you can charge up your personal magnetism by walking around on the balls of your feet. He says butter lubricates the system. He says watermelon's toxic to Caucasians. He says that he blew cigarette smoke onto some blood in his laboratory and it turned into a cancerous tumor so his uh <laughs> science is vicious at best but he is um very interested in those things so i wouldn't be surprised at all being adjacent to these people that he would have you know but again i am um, i switched my research topics when i left the east coast and i've always thought there's a definitely a book in this that i should go back and you know do some of the footwork and research i'm sure there's evidence um i went down to library of congress and i you know found all kinds of things he's written including some interesting plays one play he pretend he's Christopher Columbus and he's holding a globe the whole time he's walking around on the balls of his feet. There's actually a really kind of 
funny uh, review in a New York paper about the presentation, and the reviewer is not aware of the practice of walking on the balls of your feet, so he makes a comment that this man seems to be mincing about on the stage. <laughs> he has enormous calf muscles. So we used to, when I had parties at the, at the castle, because I, you know, I went to NYU, and I went to Columbia University, and then I went to Penn. The whole time I was living in that house for eight years. So I'd have my friends come down, and we would do the Ralston exercises. I would make a walk around the <laughs> feet, and we'd do some of the wacky things. But it's um, it just it has such a rich, you know, history. Because I, I always said it's a twisted tale of magnetic mind control, castration, and Twinkies. Because the dark side of the wackiness of Ralstonism is eugenics. He wants to castrate everyone of color oh. and uh, make a master race. That's it, the part I believe Purina has covered up. Tell me more about the beliefs that he promoted in the Ralston Health Club. Well, you have to know about eugenics. So, so, so we get Darwin coming out with the origin of species. And Darwin's cousin, Sir Joseph Galton, is the one that comes up with eugenics, which is from the Greek eugenics, which is highborn. So eugenics is someone saying, listen, if this process of natural selection is working, why don't we have cultural selection? And why don't we select for the best trait? So that really, this really catches on with certain people like Hitler, Right? So there's certain people that take eugenics to the... But what a lot of people don't understand is uh, in the U.S. we had we practiced eugenics for a couple of years and um, over 20,000 people were sterilized. So eugenics was a kind of a popular thing going on. So he comes out. It's all about purity. So we're living in this time. We have microscopes. We can see bacteria. We can see things, right? Um, so they want to come up with a perfect food. So that food is always desiccated. It's always dry. It's always some, like a graham cracker or a cornflake or, you know, something dry. But then they pour milk all over it, which is, I think, funny, full of bacteria. But the idea is they're coming up with perfect food. They want pure water, pure air. And so the next logical thing, and we call this in archaeology the whitening of America, we see people living in log cabins turning to white clapboard houses, people using wooden and pewter plates turning to white china or, or whiteware. This idea, the, in the 50s, the highest status food was creamed everything white. So there's this movement towards kind of a, this kind of homogenous, and we think of what's sterile and clean, we think white, we think of bride, we think white. So there's a kind of a slow movement towards this purity, and then the next jump once we they get to go ahead from someone like Darwin that, yes, there's something that we, you know, we knew we were selecting for dogs, breeding dogs, breeding pigeons, but now we can breed humans. So the eugenics movement, I was very shocked when I started reading about it because I was completely naive to it. But once I started researching it, you see it's a very widespread movement, taking Darwin's work and, and perverting it, essentially. So eugenics movement, there was an interesting display in the Philadelphia Museum of Science a couple of years ago, Historical Society, excuse me, when I was there, that um, looked at the eugenics movement in the U.S. and then across the world. And we still see it, ethnic cleansing, you know? Mm -hmm. And, and Edgerly was, was very much into this, right? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, if you saw that, if you looked at my, um, one of the, the things is, you know, the, the motto of the Ralston Health Club is, is, you know, perfect health, and its purpose is to create a master race, mm -hmm. create a new race, it's create a new race. So it's, it's basically, it's, it's definitely Anglo, he's Anglophile. He, in his books, he has very serious, uh, his, his, the illustrations, I mean, I make fun of them when I show them to my class sometimes, but he, he talks about the Italian criminal, the Native American criminal, the Chinese criminal, everybody that isn't white is a criminal, and then if you're white, if you're a, if you're a, a Down syndrome, you know, then you're an idiot, imbecile, American, he calls Caucasian imbecile, and he thinks they should be sterilized too. And he advocates how happy they'll be once they're sterilized because all these brown people can be uh, handmade, how they had the eunuchs, and in, in, uh, in I think about it, but what Edgley doesn't understand is just because you castrate someone doesn't mean they don't have a sex drive. But he mm -hmm. wants to remove people from the gene pool, and it, it really boils down, if you know your Greek history, to Apollo's argument on the mound. When Orestes goes up for matricide, 
they say, well, she was just a mother. You know, the father provides all the intellect. The mother's just the vessel. So it, it always, women had little value. So Edgley's putting that back. Like the man provides the temp, he says, the man provides intellect and the woman provides a temperament. So by getting rid of all the colored people of color, then all white men, you can have sex with the brown women and then the babies will have the white temperament. He's very much for castration. And he says that very clearly in his books. Edgley was a shameless user of fake identities for self-promotion. He, he goes by Webster Edgerly. He writes in the name Edmund Shaftesbury. So this is where he's kind of a genius. <laughs> he's like, he, uh, well, an evil genius. He, he, Webster Edgerly is always talking about what a great author Edward Shaftesbury is, right? <laughs> well, he's not, there's no such person. It's the same person. But there's, back then, there's no intense media. You know, you could be multiple people. So he's actually always talking about how great the other one is. One's always talking about great the other one is. I had a hard time finding finding the Shaftesbury books because Shaftesbury Avenue in Hopewell is spelled wrong. It's missing an E. So I was looking up the wrong spelling for a long time. But once I hit on Edmund Shaftesbury, there's over 80 books that are written. Webster actually will write the foreword for Edmund Shaftesbury, but they are the same person. Purina's official corporate history mentions a person called Dr. Ralston, but there was no such person. Ralston is an acronym, which stands for Regime, Activity, Light, Strength, Temperation, Oxygen, and Nature. And those words, according to Webster Edgerly, spell Ralston. They're also, according to his daughter, who was interviewed in the 80s, R.L. Stone, his mother's name. And he mm-hmm. was very devoted to his mother. The idea was you would advance through ranks in the health club by purchasing these books, right? Yeah, so you could become a 100th degree Ralstonite and go to the, 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 your immortality. He, had the, he also had the 200-year club. If you bought one of his custom stills and drank the water from it, you would live to be 200 years old. He died in his 80s. Like I said, on the table with prostate examination or whatever in Trenton. But interestingly, I never thought to look up his daughters because when I was doing research, they would have been in their late 90s. And when I was back in Hawaii in 2003, I, was just, I would always randomly kind of Google to see what information is out there on him that might have come up. I found his daughter's obituary. She lived to be 108 years old. I could have interviewed her. Oh. But I never assume. I always tell my students, don't assume someone's dead just because they would be 102. So so I know that um, a lot of information is, is not known. The family seems to, it seems like it died with him, and they didn't seem to want to carry it forward, any kind of mm-hmm. legacy of his. But um, his daughters were kind of, they were artists, and they were, one of them was at part of the, called the Philadelphia Five, I believe. She was a ceramicist, so they were kind of interesting people as well. But it was kind of a font that came from him, and when he died, it seemed like Will Danford took up the mantle briefly. He wrote a book, um, Dare, his Dare series, and then the history gets changed in um, a view of eugenics after Hitler. You know, I think a lot of that the kind of rhetoric came calmed down. But it was a very common theme throughout that period of time, eugenics. Part of this was that he wanted to establish this utopian community in Hopewell on Ralston Heights. Okay, according to him, it's going to be the future city of Ralston, and then it was going to be the first one, and everybody would come and live next to him and, you know, practice his things, and then from there they would establish his communities all over the place. And so what he did is he went and found a town that was there already, the historic town of Hopewell which had a railroad and had fire department and all the things that he needed. And then he bought up the adjacent farmland and started, he jacked the price way up. And because he was again imbuing it with this symbolic capital that you could hang out with me and I have all the secrets and we'll, we'll charge up our personal magnetism, you would come in and buy that. But it, it, a few lots sell, but very few, it just, it just, it doesn't ever really take off. And in the beginning, the town is very happy to see him. He, he hires everybody. He puts in all this, does all this great restoration on his house and builds these fabulous gardens. He sent fruit baskets to the newspaper. 
Yeah, and then you have a campaign about the danger of matches, of friction matches, and how it's going to burn the whole town down because they don't have enough water. He starts this kind of terror campaign, and lo and behold, then he graciously offers to donate a piece of land to put the new city water system on. He designs and builds it, but it's really for his community because his mm-hmm. community doesn't have any water. And the smarter people in the community are on to him, and it cracks within two months, and the people's water starts to taste like asphalt. I read all the <laughs> Hopewell Herald. It's once a week, but I read them all because I knew when his horse you know, got sick or when his house barn got struck by lightning. So you can see the townspeople complaining about it. And eventually he just basically run out of town. But he comes in just the idea of kind of absorb these communities. Mm-hmm. you know, with his Rolf tonight. And then, and then the, but the interesting thing is, because this is, you know, it's the time of commun, com, you know, communes, this is what the, a lot of the stuff going on in the, in the 19th century's idea of living communally. You know, he had farms. It was going to be self-sufficient to a certain extent. They were going to grow their own food. But they didn't put in, in his city, any infrastructure, like the mm-hmm. police or fire department or schools or stores or transportation. So the future city of Ralston really depended on Hopewell. He picks it um, because it's strategic between Philly and New York, but it's also he doesn't pay taxes. He's living in D.C. across from Tesla and, and Bell, and he's spending most of his time in Jersey, and he's not paying any income tax. So, or maybe it's property taxes. I just know there's a lot of hoo-hoo, hoo-hoo's Hawaiian, sorry, lots of <laughs> issues in town with um, his uh, not paying taxes mm-hmm. and coming in trying to take over the town. It's through so- the politics of protests, like you said, like through gifting and... Also showing, look, I grow pineapples in New Jersey in the winter, so I, I must be godlike. You know, I must be <laughs> someone that can oversee this, you know, scientifically proven Garden of Eden. Mm-hmm. It was so weird to be in that house reading his books where he wrote them. It was very odd. It's not <laughs> your normal research experience. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that, that's that's incredible. What remains of this community that he tried to build? Not much. His estate was the only thing that was ever put in. The, it was just pretty much lines on paper, dividing it up. But it was interesting because he's all this emphasis on walking around in graceful curbs and arcs and on the balls of your feet. And then he made this kind of town that looks like ice cube trays. You know, it's like it's like, it's like a Levitt town. It's a subdivision with little lots and some palatial estates and some farms. But nothing really gets sold. He builds his estate, which has seven ponds. There's seven rooms on every floor. There's seven principals in Ralston's, and he loves the number seven. And he puts all that in in order to attract people to come and see the spectacular. But basically, there's no work for these people, right? Mm-hmm. If they move there, where are they going to work, right? So the idea is it just never really takes off. Mm-hmm. And the price is what he's charging for the lots because he's definitely wanting people to, you know, flock to him. And, and saying that we need, he needs the company, the Rolfsonites need to do this throughout the U.S., you know, to take over whole communities. They come in, they're going to do all this great stuff, you know. He's non-denominational. He gives to all the churches in town. Meanwhile, he has his own religion, right, his, mm-hmm. own, his own belief system. And uh, they get onto him. So then he built a, a similarly, not quite as fabulous of a house in Trenton. I've been to that house, too. Not in it, but outside of it. This is right by the Capitol, mm-hmm. right downtown. Yeah, so he lives there and with his two daughters and his wife until he dies. Mm-hmm. But yeah, they kind of, and then it gets the house gets sold and it begins. It's only had a few owners, you know. The home underwent many renovations over the years, but a few Ralstonite artifacts remained, including an engraving plate for which diplomas from one of Ralston's other Edgerly endeavors, Ralston University, could be made. That was one of several schools that he founded, but the academic credentials of these institutions were questionable at best. 
They were through schools of oratory and elocution. Yeah. They were. There was there was the um, Martin School of Expression, but there was never any real. No, and and oh my God, I I, I own fifty five of those books. He repeats himself. He needs an editor. He just says the same <laughs> stuff again and again. He has these run on sentences that are crazy, full of vitriol about African Americans, just on and on and on. You know, my favorite is the Negro has uh, two senses: sex and digestion. For either of these, he would plunge to his death. You're like, really? Wow. I mean, what you really think, dude? I'm, I'm telling you, when I when I uncovered the eugenics part, I was ready to stop the whole all my research. I was so distraught. But my advisor at NYU, um, I was at Columbia at the time, but I called my friend um, Pam Crabtree, who lived in Hopewell, and she was my undergrad advisor at NYU, and and she said, "Oh, Janet, everybody was eugenicist back then." Because I, again, I was really naive, you know, about eugenics. I didn't know what it was. I knew about racism, but I didn't understand that there was a calculated effort to actually remove people from the population, other than Hitler. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, I just I had to realize that this is something that um, was common and was thought about, and it really came out of, you know, Darwin's research and looking at genetics. So people thought, well, we can make a master race. Why not in New Jersey? Well, a better place to make a master race than Hopewell, New Jersey. <laughs> if you have 50 of his books, what degree Ralstonite does that make you? Oh, good God. It's so, you know the worst? People would reach out to me who really were believers of his, and I'd be like, I, I have to write, like, I am familiar, because I'm probably the world's leading expert on Ralstonism, but quite a distinction, but I don't, I'm not a practitioner, I don't believe in it, because they would write to me, because he was also in the phrenology, the head bump, lump things, right? Uh-huh. So I'd get people that were like, really liked his stuff, that would reach out to me, and that was kind of creepy. I know there was another guy that was using his magnetism classes and teaching him in Florida. Yeah, where else but Florida, right? So Janet Six has a lot more to say about Webster Edgerly and the castle, but I'd like to do a quick show note here. What we're trying to do with this podcast is to be completely unique and bring you stories that you will not hear anywhere else. So if you appreciate this and would like to support what we do, and if you want to make sure that we're able to do more episodes, please help spread the word, review and rate the podcast wherever you're listening to it, or just tell a friend who you think might like it. If you have any feedback or questions or suggestions for topics we should cover, please feel free to comment on the Forgotten History Facebook page, or send me an email at ForgottenHistoryNJ at gmail.com. Thanks, and now back to our interview with Janet Six. And then there's a gentleman in England who's posted a bunch on him, but they're not follow. I mean, he's not a follower, but there's some people out there that are actually followers. And that's scary, but, you know, we live in scary times. Um... You know, because it's uh, not really based in science, very vitriolic, but it's also reactionary, you know, to the end of slavery. It's that time people are trying to figure out what, what's going on, and, and it, you know, it's, we're still dealing with the ramifications of past actions. But Edgerly was just looking for a way to start off wanting to, you know, teach people voice lessons, and then he gets some power, and, you know, then he's going to sell him some stuff, and next thing you know, he's going to tell you how to live, how to have sex, when to bathe, how you move your body. Um, there was a whole, I have one of the books, and all the exercises are set to music, so they would play music and hop around, and this is really for the very wealthy elites, because the price of these books back then would have been something that would have been definitely out of my price range. Mm-hmm. The people that are getting these books, this is not intended for the masses. He says it's for every hardworking man, woman, and child, but that's not true. Huh. And there were some other strange things in his book. He invented his own language. Yeah, Adam Man Tongue. Yeah, <laughs> it's like Esperanto. Yeah. Oh. Yeah, he thought everything should be phonetic. 
right? He's like the neighboring way and all the kind of complications because English language is a mongrel, you know, made up of a number of languages, so he wanted to simplify everything. So he wrote Adam Mantong in his spare time. Um, he wrote a bunch of plays. He wrote a bunch of poetry. And he wrote over, I think, 80, 85 books, 87 books. Yeah. The Library of Congress, Princeton University had a lot of them. Um, I don't know if you've ever been to the Princeton University Library, but you get in an elevator and you go down in the ground a few floors, and the Ralston books were down in the spookiest part of the Princeton archives, and you'd walk through and the lights were all motion sensor, they'd come off and on, but they have a lot of his books. They should be so, in the spookiest part of the library. I'm telling you, someone should do a murder chase scene down there. Those, those books actually crank, you know, so you get pinched between them, because I'd be down there, like, the lights would be coming on, I'd be looking for some magnetism, weird book of... You know, but um, the early books are pretty straightforward. They don't have the, the racism. The early books are just, you know, how to breathe. And they actually have some efficacy, like, you know, strengthening your lungs, because this is before PA systems. So you want to be able to project if you're an opera or you're a performer. So it starts off, he seems to be interested in oratory and elocution and then gets involved in all kinds of other stuff. And that was, that was that crazy time, the theosophists and, you know, Antoine Mesmer, before that, but we get the term mesmerism. So mm-hmm. he believed in animal magnetism. Edgerly kind of steals that and turns that into personal magnetism. And he claims that he's not pulling from anything, but he is kind of pulling for lots of these kind of um, wacky belief systems. The Victorians are very interesting people. He wants to separate people from their money. You know, you've got a burgeoning middle class. People want, now people don't want to die. They want to live forever. He's got the ticket to do that, according to him. Right, and so he's got this big house that you know just communicates power to the community. Look at all my resources; I can marshal. I can get this wood from all over the world, and I can get this brick from England. It's like any kind of a cult figure; people fall for that display of power and control. It really begs to be made into a book or mm-hmm. someone you know to bring all this research together because it's really, really fascinating. And I already have the title: From Dogma to Dog Chow. <laughs> the Untold History of Ralston Heights. Because it is, it's, it is a twisted tale of magnetic mind control castration. And I was obsessed with it, you know, in the beginning I, I got Ralston advertisements because I wanted to look at what's the imagery, what's he communicating, you know, how's he going about this very strategic. And it's interesting, when I first got to the University of Pennsylvania, my advisor's like, well, you're just not looking in the right places. This could not be absent from history. I'm like, okay. <laughs> so then after five years, he finally conceded that this was absent from history that no one had written about it, and it had been intentionally swept under the rug. So that's the problem, is you can't go to a, a primary source. You are you have to go um, and pull it all together for yourself. There's not like I can go read a book about Ralph Webster-Edgerly and then go forward, which is why people reach out to me, because I probably have the most comprehensive knowledge, but it was very specifically focused on his time in Hopewell. And then since then, I've you know, like, I, like you do, once in a while I'll just do some Googling. One thing that struck me when reading about this is that None of this has gone away. There are still people out there making gajillions of dollars on ridiculous health claims. There are still people who they go off and form a weird cult and then get a bunch of followers. Like Everything he pioneered is still going on, it seems like. Yeah. No, honestly, I like to look at Noam Chomsky's language and propaganda and how people, and he's, he's, he's so timely. He's before tweets. I mean, he's mm-hmm. doing mail-order book companies. He's using the written word to persuade people. He's doing things, you know, and he's just telling people nonsense, and they're believing it. But he's also saying, look, I'm someone in a powerful position, so I got all this, I have all this money and success, so you must, you know, you want to be like me. It's the American dream. You can have your own Ralston franchise. You can, you know... It's still going on, absolutely. I was just scanning through my master's thesis because I haven't read it. Um, I was rereading it, and I, you know, I've forgotten. I wrote this thing 16 years ago. But it's so timely still. The propaganda, the getting people emotionally agitated, targeting others, blaming everything on someone else. Wouldn't it be crazy if someone who founded a fake university named after themselves rose to a position of power? 
Wouldn't that be amazing? Hmm? <laughs> on nonsense, based on nonsense. Mm-hmm. Oh. <laughs> yeah, lack of science. Yeah, watermelon yeah. is toxic. Caucasians. Okay. Um. Dump some water on the cathedral. <laughs> That's a genius idea. <laughs> Again, once you have this propaganda, people, this is what I find. Oh, I recently, not to get on a tangent, but people are posting on Facebook like, Ellen's giving me a million dollars. No. There, she's not. It's a meme. You really believe because you see it in writing that it's true, but then I realize how many people feel like if they see it, it's real. They don't do any research. They don't question it. Like I always tell my students, if I can do one thing, let me make you a critical thinker. Question everything. But this edgerly, like so many, they want a scapegoat. They want to blame it on everybody, and they want a quick fix. By my still, you'll live to be 200 years old, and it's snake oil, and they're still doing it, charlatans. And, yeah, it's interesting times we live in, but when I was rereading it, I'm like, this sounds familiar, 16 years mm-hmm. later. Sucker born every minute. It's fun to revisit this. I was actually texting one of my friends prior to this call um, that I was going to be doing this, and she's like, oh, we're all nice. I'm like, yeah, because we had some good times there as well. The house itself was, it's all the downstairs was all a series of parlors that could be closed off with pocket doors. Then it had the giant stairway up to the third floor where you could play music. So I used to hire mariachi bands or people would come and play because the acoustics in the house were insane. And then the second floor was a series of um, where his family lived, um, bedrooms with fireplaces. And, and you know, it, it, when, when he built the house, he boasts it has three bathrooms, 27,000 square feet. But that was a big deal for a Victorian house to have a bathroom on every floor. There had been a lot of remodeling, but then the, fourth, the, the top floor, because there's a basement, so technically there's four floors, but you walk in on, at the, on the top level. And the top was all classrooms. And the cool thing about the classrooms, he wrote this, in the round tower, if you stood in the center and spoke, you'd hear others hear you. And if you stood in the center of the square tower and spoke, you'd hear yourself as if you were addressing a room of 50 people. So we used to do this, go in the middle of the tower. And if you stood in the center of the round tower and you spoke, you know when you hear yourself on the phone, you're always like, oh, that sounds odd. You know, you're not used to hearing your own voice. It has that. And so the upstairs was all for acoustics. And I used to think, like, who stood in these rooms saying, me, 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 or whatever, you know, whatever, A, B, C, D, whatever he had him doing, famous opera singers, the people that came to study privately with him. So, and just thinking about Harry Houdini being in the house. It's just sort of interesting. I used to always, like I said, I, I lived in the Round Tower. I um, it was my bedroom, and I would be in there and thinking about him writing, because he wrote downstairs. He says you're only supposed to sleep an hour a night. He calls it a Ralston nap. So I don't know if he's imbibing in cocaine back then, <laughs> which he says he's all about temperance but he never slept and his typing drove his wife young wife so crazy that he built an ancillary, ancillary room off the front he called them we i thought it was something later but he actually built it just so his typing wouldn't keep his wife up hmm. so he built this building but he wrote non-stop because even if terrible books it's hard to write 85 books <laughs> even bad ones you know so he's very prolific very manic i i came across a woman at stanford who was actually using his stuff in her early childhood education stuff because he's one of the first people to actually say that the woman did have some influence over the baby. Even though he still was going with the Apollo on the mound, that the father you know, has all the intellect, he did say if the mother read the Daily Sewerage, like the National Inquiry or watch Fox News, it would impact the infant, that <laughs> fetus. So it's sort of interesting that he actually, this woman would use that as one of the examples, but she didn't know all about the eugenics thing. So oftentimes if I find someone who's using his work, they're using a, a small part of it. So he actually says women have more personal magnetism than men. Um, he encourages women to go out in the garden and ride a bicycle. So there's certain things about him that are progressive. They would be seen as progressive for his time. Mm-hmm. And then there's other things that, you know, we've discussed. It sounds like of everything he claimed to know something about, he actually maybe did know something about acoustics? Well, you know, he, he, somebody did. 
Um, he was oratory elocution. That his first books are all based on Daniel Webster's teachings and building this enormous barrel chest. And even the descriptions of him, they talk about his enormous calf muscles. They also talk about him being pretty barrel-chested. So he talks about consumption, consumptive diseases. Remember, there's all the sanatoriums at this point with tuberculosis. And so the idea is to strengthen your lungs so you won't get pneumonia, so you won't get sick or consumptive diseases. So in the beginning, it seems like that's what he's doing. And he's a lawyer, so he's probably, you know, arguing cases, And I'm assuming, because, I don't. again, I'd have to go up and do some research in Salem and in Boston where he actually was practicing and then go to Topeka and do some more research because I'm sure there's a lot of information on him. You just have to dig for it. But, yeah, he's uh, he does seem to know something about acoustics. I don't think he's a dummy. I just think some of the science is he doesn't have the science. So that's why I mean, I'm sure he knew Tesla and, and Bell, whether he hung out with them or was a, a peer, but he would have he been living right across the street. So I would think they would have some kind of a – but, again, I need to go to D.C. and do a bunch of research and see who's having parties and who's attending, and a lot of that stuff has just never been mined, that information, to see if there's connections. I would have loved to interview his daughter, and I was really heartbroken when I found out that she was still alive and I missed it, but my advisor pointed out she might not have been in her right mind, but it was one of those, like, oh, my gosh, to talk to someone who knew him and ask what it was like to live in that house. The town talks about him being this kind of portly gentleman that walks around town, and I love that he has a little rowboat on Lake Ralston, and it's like a big cement pond. I just pictured this portly dude mincing his way down there and getting in this rowboat and <laughs> going around in circles in Lake Ralston. He did have some fabulous vineyards and things, and I do have pictures of all those things. They're all gone. So of the estate, what's left is the main house. There were some outbuildings that were moved, so just the foundations remained. There's an ice pond, and then there's the seven ponds in the yard. It's a very interesting space. And he talks about the design, now whether he came up with it all, but he does talk about making the rooms not the same shape so that you're constantly startled. And there's weird little nooks and places that are kind of tucked behind that don't make any sense. So there's some interesting... We always thought we'd find, like, some secret passage. We actually took a sledgehammer to where the, the tunnels were <laughs> were bricked up when I was living there. With, so the kids came home for uh, Christmas, and they went down there, but Phil came down and shut it down. They didn't want us to tear the house down. But you could actually <laughs> peek in through the top where they bricked it up, and you could see rubble. So there was a space that was definitely filled. There was definitely a tunnel. But it was just one of those things I never got a chance to open up and take a look. But again, I'm not sure if it would have been to the Underground Railroad or if it just would have been a service tunnel to one of the outbuildings. If you had an unlimited budget and all the modern tools, would you... Do you think it would be worthwhile to do a more thorough uh, investigation? You can use ground penetrating radar now. You can use ground penetrating radar. You could look for subsurface anomalies like tunnels. Definitely do much more research, like going to Topeka, Kansas, going to Boston, going to Salem, going to D.C. Because I did Hopewell. I was Hopewell-centric. I read the Hopewell Herald. So I knew when, like I said, his kids got whooping cough. You know, everything is Hopewell. Anything that happened. And he, in the beginning, he was in the paper a lot in a very positive light. Then you see that shift. It was interesting because it was all, so the time we'd see some stuff about the Lindbergh kidnapping, which is, you know, Lindbergh's another person that's associated with that space. And it's weird because I live on Maui and Charles Lindbergh is buried on Maui and I know his granddaughter, Erin Lindbergh. Hmm. So I told her I have a weird connection to your family because I live in Hopewell. But I would see some, you know, the newspaper articles up in Flemington, but you'd see the coverage of the, because I read all the way through the 1920s because um, Edgerly maintained the property for a long time, even though he wasn't living there until it was finally sold after his death. And then Tarina kind of distances themselves and starts to put out um, in the, the Will Danforth book, The Dare series, he puts that they were founded by Dr. Ralston. And there is no Dr. Ralston. So 
I wrote to Ralph and Trina when I was, because it was still Ralph and Trina, in uh, 99 when I was at Columbia. And I told them about my research, and I got this kind of cursory letter back saying, oh, we don't know what you're talking about. We were founded by Dr. Ralston, which I thought was interesting because I had this 1976 company prospectus that I'd gotten off online that showed Webb Stradley. It was a Ralston Prina company prospectus, but they left out all the eugenics part. But I think, I think the people I was talking to had no idea because Prina had consciously covered it up. As I said, well, Danforth's um, grandson didn't know about all that stuff until he read my articles. I got a letter from him, but... It was sort of interesting to kind of realize I was kind of feel like this was this weird cover-up. And then you have to remember eugenics. So they want to castrate people, but now what are they doing with people? They're feeding them bad food. They're feeding them Hostess, Captain Crunch, Wonder Bread, Jack in the Box. And a lot of people that are eating this food are not as wealthy, right? And a lot of them will be people of color. And so a weird way, they're continuing to not nourish these people. But then Nestle buys Purina in 2003 for $10.3 billion. And Nestle is the evil antichrist that's selling all our water and who also sold um, Similac baby formula throughout Africa without enough nutritional value. So basically, again, in a weird form of eugenics, targeting people and profiting off them and their misery, right? So now they're no longer Ralston's associates. It's the Nestle Prina Company, and Ralston kind of just got kicked to the side. Nowhere in the Ralston Prina Company history or in the Nestle Prina do they ever talk about any of the things that went on, the eugenics or the less savory aspects of Ralstonism. They, you know, they showed pictures of the house and the prospectus and told the history of, you know, all the stuff he built, but they never got into the real purpose of the Ralston Health Club of America, which mm-hmm. is to establish a new base in Hopewell. <laughs> what he talked are... about the water. You know, Hopewell's known for water, those artesian wells there. They used to bottle that water just down the hill from him under the name of Stella Artois, like the beer. Hmm. Yeah, so there's a water bottling factory. So I think that's one reason he selects that area as the water. What big questions do you still have after all your research? He became such a part of my life for eight years. That I thought he's, it's not a, he's not a friend, but I went to his cave and I, I stood there. And I thought, I hope you're not flipping over in it, but he probably wouldn't like what I'm doing with it. But I, I just think, again, I, just, I should pursue completing the research and really form I don't, a book about this because, you know, I have a snippet of the time in Hopewell, but there's got to be a lot of stuff that's going went on in D.C. I'm sure he was lobbying for things, I think, if I went and did some research. So I think I've always had this idea that I would go back and, and, and try to complete, get a more complete picture of him, less because of the snapshot of the time of his time in Hopewell, you know, than, and to do something like that. But it's an interesting story. Every time I'd get a book, there'd be some new revelation of weirdness. <laughs> and then just Again, living in his house. And I had dreams about it. I had dreams in that house that he came to get me and was chasing me. Because, of course, I'm reading his books. I'm sitting in his house, and I'd seen all these pictures of him. And so I actually remember one really distinct one that he was so mad at me. And I, I woke up. I was like, oh. But I think, um, to me, it's just such an interesting, you know, a lot of people be like, why would you want to pursue it? Or why would you want to celebrate this person? Not celebrating him, but it's just like you said, there's so many parallels to what's going on now. And just the, the, the idea that this um, kind of a con man for lack of a better word, was able to be so successful and that people really want to believe what he was selling them. Edgerly's teachings may be mostly forgotten, but to this day, his home is an impressive place. He was a strange man, and he built a strange house. I lived in there for eight years. I lived in three different rooms in that house, and uh, it definitely had a resonance. It had a energy. I don't know how to explain it. Just like any kind of weird space that you go in, we call phenomenology. Like when you go into a library, you're quiet, or you go into a church, you're supposed to be respectful. Like this house had a, it had an effect on you. And I watched it when I would bring, I brought my advisor there from Penn, and he got lost. It would, get, it would disorient you. It was a kind of a mystery house, kind of a confusing space, and I think that was what Edgerly was going for. And um, so I think 
he did believe in some of this nonsense. I don't think he was a complete charlatan. I think he did think he, you know, he was putting together things that he'd read and people he liked. But then I think when he started profiting off the books, then it becomes more, you know, how much money can I make? Because a lot of the books, again, they have you do these Sisyphusian tasks like picking up marbles in circles. So we do this at the castle. We called everyone called it the castle um, in, in Hopewell. I'd have people come over. We'd be upstairs, and I'd say, "Let's let's, let's do some of the edger, you know edgerly exercises." You, it says you're supposed, to, you're supposed to pick up the marbles in circles and put the marble back, and the marble's never supposed to move. Well, that's impossible. <laughs> so you could spend your whole life trying to perfect picking up marbles in circles because there's no perfectly level surface to put it on. You know, when the minute you set it down, the marble's going to move a little, so you have to keep doing it. So he, I just picture him kind of, is this a way of generating personal magnetism, kind of like almost spinning a wheel, right? Just this endless repetitive, repetitive actions that you're never going to master so that you just keep trying to do it and you keep thinking it's your fault that you don't have personal magnetism because you just haven't mastered these <laughs> idiotic, you know? So I think some things he believed in and some things I think he just put out there and probably knew they were nonsense because so we would try to do these things. And it's a running joke. I always said Barbie was a Ralph tonight because she's always walking on the toes of her feet. <laughs> Because, I mean, you try to do that. I mean, as a woman who wears high heels, and not anymore, but, you know, historically, my God, it hurts your feet. So, like, the idea that they, I mean, I'm an anthropologist. The heel strike is what tells us that somebody walks upright. It's called habitual bipedalism. So we look for the heel strike. So for him to take the heel out of the equation and to have you walking on the, basically like a dog on the pad of your foot, that's not good. I can't feel good. That's that's just nonsense. But he was on to the idea that, you know, he didn't recognize some people had charisma. Some people could control a room, and we all know those people. They're, and a lot of times they become cult personalities or cult leaders, you know, the idea that there are people that seem to have this. And he thought, I can commodify this, and everybody can have it. So I can sell it to people. The term personal magnetism is still very commonly used. Is that from Ralston? Or is oh, it... yeah, that's him. He's, oh. he, a cultivation of personal, personal magnetism is one of his books. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I have a lot of Ralston paraphernalia, um, memorabilia I collected, and um, it's just... An, and then it's just interesting that it just vanishes. It just vanishes, and they just act like it doesn't exist, which you you know you used to be able to do because you could just bury something. Now, it's not going to change the past, but it is a fascinating aspect that they just sort of edited from history. When he lived in the mansion, Edgerly taught oratory to celebrities of his day. But even after he was gone, the castle managed to attract famous residents. And then I remember when I moved there, I, I was going to the post office, and someone's like, it's really bohemian up there. I'm like, uh-huh. It was just, just a house. But I guess back in the day, blues travelers used to play there all the time. They were high school friends with the Roberts family. And so before they were famous, John Popper lived in the Round Tower, and they would all play the high school parties. So that the ta- that, I guess the house, you know, historically, when the Roberts had it, was always known as a party house. I've met John Popper a bunch of times, and... You know, because they would bring the tour van there when I lived there. They would come up for parties in um, Christmas time. I'm glad you called. Awesome. Well, it was wonderful talking to you. Thank you so much. Nice talking to you. And I said you got me all excited to do this. I need to write this book. And that's all we have for today. Forgotten History is a production of Community News Service in Lawrenceville, New Jersey. And our theme music is The Quiet Earth by Thomas Barandon. Special thanks to Janet Six and also to the Interlibrary Loan Department at Mercer County Library System. We're very helpful in researching this episode. Thanks for listening.